everyone. Welcome to Reluctantly Adult. I'm your host, Charmel Scipio, and I reluctantly adult. I'm sure you're probably thinking, what the hell does that mean? Essentially, it means that I would much rather eat snacks and take a nap than do anything that could be remotely considered adulting. And what I realized is that I am not the only person that feels that way. Many of the reasons that I was given as to why people feel that way, myself included, is because we feel like we don't have enough information. So I created this podcast as an advice podcast, uh, essentially to get more information for people so that they can be more adult in their lives, or at least feel like they're doing a better job of adulting. Each month, there's going to be a new topic, and with that topic, I'm going to talk to strangers, family members, friends, um, and experts alike to get some advice for people who may be struggling with tackling the, the topic of the month. This month for January, the topic is New Year's resolutions. And the most popular New Year's resolution ever is for people to get more fit or to lose weight or to just focus on their health overall. So today I talk with Dr. Charlie Seltzer from Lean for Life, a weight loss and fitness solutions um, company. And essentially he gives us some insight into what he does to help his uh, patients lose weight. And I'm sure you're going to find some of it... um, very counterintuitive and counter to what your uh, idea of what you should be doing. Um, So enjoy. Welcome to Reluctantly Adult. Please introduce yourself to the people. Well, thanks for having me on, first of all. No problem. My name is Charlie Seltzer. I am a physician in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I work with people to help them live longer, healthier lives by losing body fat, building muscle, and improving sleep and other types of things that generally kill people prematurely. So why or how did you get into this particular field of medicine? I always had a passion for fitness, but I weighed 240 pounds at my highest. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a pretty bad binge eating disorder and some anxiety on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to learn to control that um, made it even more of a passion for me. Um, so I thought that if I could combine my passion with the job, it would be a good situation for everybody. So given sort of your your background, both as a physician, but also your, your personal struggle, um, what is your treatment philosophy? The treatment philosophy is to do as little as possible to achieve the intended results and to use research that was not supposed to be funny, but I guess it is. Yeah, I mean, it is because you're saying that essentially I want you to do as little as possible but to still gain results, which is is counterintuitive. Right. So what we know for sure is that being overweight or obese is going to kill you prematurely, whether it be from complications of sleep apnea or diabetes or heart disease or a stroke or whatever it might be. There's no other research out there that is as strong as that with regard to certain types of foods killing you or certain exercise being better or worse for you. So my philosophy is whatever you need to do to not be overweight is going to give you a better shot at living a long, healthy, productive life than anything else you might do. So does your your sort of, 
I guess like let's let's not change anything kind of approach is that different than other doctors? Um, I mean, I, I try not to comment on what other doctors do, and it's not changed nothing. It's changed as little as possible. Um, okay. Which, which I- I- in reality, tends to be a lot, but Such as... doesn't need to be anything more. So, for example, if somebody is eating a bacon, egg, and cheese bagel every morning at Dunkin' Donuts and has been doing so for the past 15 years, it's very, very unrealistic to think that he is going to read a book or hear a a podcast and Mm -hmm. start making kale smoothies instead for the rest of his life. Maybe he'll get excited and motivated and do it for a day or two, but when life gets in the way or boredom sets in or the fact that he probably doesn't even know why he's doing it other than someone told him will make his chances of long-term success less than if we were to say, why don't you just try eating a bacon, egg, and cheese English muffin instead? And the same way people become overweight is just by eating a little bit extra every day, just taking a little bit away every day often is enough to get people's weight moving down. Huh. So that that is a very interesting approach to to the whole sort of weight loss dichotomy of, you know, most people say, okay, you have to eat very healthy and then you have to work out. Whereas you're saying you don't necessarily not have to work out, like you should work out, but also you don't necessarily have to do a whole 180 toward the way that you approach your food also. Well, you, most people can't do that. I mean, it sets people up for failure. I think mm-hmm. that the stats are that like 98% of diets fail, and I, I would argue that 100% of diets are wrong. That Essentially wrong. 100%. Yeah, I mean, just the, the term diet connotes like an end point or mm-hmm. a... Um, a finite period of time where you do something and the kinds of plans where they say, okay, for the first four weeks, we're going to do this and then we're going to add this and then we're going to do that afterward. It works really nicely in theory and on paper, but practically it doesn't work. So when you tell somebody not to drink any wine for four weeks and then to slowly reintroduce it, what really happens is somebody not drink wine for four weeks and when that four weeks is up they're going to drink three bottles because they're used to drinking wine for the 30 years prior to this stupid thing that they tried right so that's essentially the reason why people who when they say that they're going to start working out specifically like around a new year's resolution and you know they go super hardcore around the diet and around the working out is why eventually they they just completely stop and and don't do it anymore because of the depravity is is really what's what's really killing them essentially yeah and they will do things that are non-compatible with their lifestyle which maybe they can get away with for january 2nd and 3rd but when the normal things start to pop up that have been popping up in their lives for the past several years, then they're not going to be equipped to deal with it. I see. Uh, I think what I'm trying to say is you need to find a plan that works around your lifestyle, mm-hmm. not try to make your lifestyle work around a plan. So how how exactly would folks know how to do that? Because essentially what you're saying is like, your your lifestyle is not going to change drastically to the sense that you will be able to sustain, you know, going 100% hardcore at whatever it is that you chose to do to start losing weight. So how exactly can they focus on, uh, like, their meal planning? Um, so let's talk about how exactly can they understand how much to eat first. Right. Okay. And then, like, breaking that down <coughs> as far as the different areas of, like, how much carbs, how much pro- okay. produce, different things like that. Great question. Um, so the first thing I like to do is some data gathering. 
since it's pretty well known that people will grossly underestimate how much food they eat. Mm -hmm. Don't really pay attention to what they're doing because most of the eat done in our society is mindless. So the first thing we try to do, or I try to do, is to get somebody tracking their food for a two-week period. Mm -hmm. um, not making any conscious changes, but just writing things down. And I like my fitness pal, which is the online app, which is free, that will calculate things. And it's not a perfect system, but it's the best one we have so far. So you take two weeks and you just go about your business doing the same stuff you did before. At the same time, you weigh yourself regularly. At the end of the two-week period, you can look at the average caloric intake against your weight to get a pretty real-world approximation of where you need to be to maintain your weight, gain weight, or lose weight. And that can be done by looking at your weight against the calories. If you've tracked for those two weeks and subconsciously ate less because you were tracking and your mm -hmm. weight dropped a pound or two, then you should continue doing that until your weight stops dropping. I see. Just track. Again, as little as possible. If your weight stays the same, which is what normally happens, then you can first look for patterns in there to see if there's anything glaring that might be an easy fix. Um, for example, if you're eating 17 cookies at three o'clock every day mm -hmm. because the cookies are in front of you, it might be easy just to move the cookies and see if that doesn't help it. Um, normally, people see patterns where they will be not eating breakfast, they'll be um, They'll eat a lot of their food at night, um, mm -hmm. but then they will start force-feeding themselves breakfast because people wrongly believe that in eating breakfast increases your metabolism, which mm -hmm. it doesn't. Um, it's true that people who eat breakfast tend to maintain lower body weights than people who don't, but that's because they eat fewer calories throughout the day, and it's not everybody. There are a mm -hmm. lot of people out there who will eat breakfast and be just as hungry in the afternoon, but will have less calories left over. So when you look at your natural tendencies through the data gathering, you design a plan that works with that. Mm -hmm. So if you like to eat most of your food at night, then set up for most food at night. Like there's nothing wrong with eating carbs at night. There's nothing wrong with six o'clock is not a magic number where all carbs turn to fat or whatever it is. Right. You know, our bodies work on a, a daily, weekly clock um, with regard to calorie balance. And there are some studies out there which say that eating most of your food at night can actually improve weight loss versus eating most of your food in the morning. So you bring up a good point in stating that because I think that a large number of people, myself included, have heard that, you know, you basically there's there's basically the saying that says, you know, eat like a king in the morning, eat like a prince in the afternoon and eat like a pulper at night. So before you go to bed, um, you know, you should be eating your lightest meal. But what you're saying is if you naturally prefer not to eat a lot for breakfast, you know, have a, a medium-sized lunch, but want to really go in for dinner, that's wholly okay because that's how your body is kind of naturally yes. wanting to do. Yeah, just because a guy with a lot of letters after his name wrote a blog on the internet saying not to do it <laughs> doesn't mean that it's true. Right. And I, most people like to eat most of their food at night. So they're brainwashed into thinking they have to eat this giant breakfast. They're not any less hungry at night, but they don't have any calories left. Right. Which forces them to either be angry and deprived and hungry before they go to sleep, which is not a good way to have long-term success. Or you can eat longer throughout the day and eat your, most of your food at night. And mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. Anything that leads to fat loss, I don't have a problem with as long as it's healthy and not stupid. So I guess that would be the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that would I think you're right. Yeah, I think that would be the same. Um, so then that leads me to ask you about all of these 
trend diets that that you see online, you know, around like paleo or low carb or no carb or no wheat, just all of these things that tell me I can't have something or I can't do something. Um, sort of what is your philosophy and approach to those things? Have you suggested them to clients or are you just like, listen, just just eat whatever you want within within well, means, I would say. Right. You see, so, I mean, I you know, first of all, um, I encourage people to eat clean like it's mm-hmm. a good idea like i think that non-processed foods that are, are good um but not if you're going to not be able to do it so all other things being equal someone who doesn't care about food and just needs it for sustenance i'll say yeah eat clean you know eat, eat unprocessed healthy food and this and that and the other thing but for somebody who doesn't have that lifestyle i would recommend that they not necessarily try to do it you know let it happen or over time just by making a couple small substitutions. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the trendy diets, if you can look, like do a Google search on like what the trendy diets were in 1990, you'll see the same types of things that are out there today, just recycled and packaged differently. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing's really new. Nothing's revolutionary. There's no, there's no revolutionary weight loss anything out there. Right. And if there was, the government would probably be putting it in the water. <laughs> Certainly, most companies would. So, anything that, that has a, a a number before the word diet, anything that has diet in it, anything that is take this pill and don't do anything else, I would run from. So then, the only lighter, the only thing that's going to be lighter in that case is your wallet, right? Because they they are expensive. All, all of that stuff is very expensive. I mean, and and it also leads me into my next question, which is about those you know, supplements and diuretics that you see advertised on TV, the sort of um, over-the-counter weight loss drugs. Um, what are your thoughts on those things? Well, I mean, as far as diuretics go, if you're having bad fluid retention with PMS, then it's probably a good idea to talk to your gynecologist or obstetrician about mm-hmm. maybe a diuretic around that time. Um, weight loss and fat loss should be used synonymously, but they're not. So a, a lot of the supplements there also come with very, very restrictive diets, which will take the sugar and water out of your muscles, which can lead to a pretty dramatic scale loss mm-hmm. over two or three days, but will not change the amount of fat in your body, which is what we're really after. Mm-hmm. Most supplements don't work, or if they do, the, the impact is minimal. I would say that supplements may be helpful in 1% of people, like if a bodybuilder is trying to get from 6% body fat to 4 body fat. Mm -hmm. Some of that stuff may be helpful, but certainly taking green coffee bean extract is not going to counteract the bonbons um, and the pizza if you're doing that. So what are your thoughts about using drugs to help clients lose weight? If not the supplements that are sold, you know, either on TV or at GNC, are there alternatives to, to help people? Yeah. So, I mean, losing weight is very difficult as it is. If you put somebody in an ideal weight loss scenario, um, access to good food, no stress, et cetera, they'll still fail a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So any tool that we can use that has a favorable risk benefit profile, I'm all for. So for example, fentramine is a very old appetite suppression drug. Um, It doesn't cause metabolic enhancement. It's not addictive, but it does suppress appetite. Mm -hmm. And for people who tend to overeat, I think it's a wonderful drug in appropriately screened people. And I know certain medical weight loss practices out there who will essentially give fentanyl to everybody. And I think that's a horrible idea. Um, It does cause major appetite suppression, suppression, 
Um, and a lot of physicians will use it as a means to bring somebody to 500 calories per day or 600 calories a day, which causes dramatic weight loss, but it's generally not the kind of weight loss and never lasts. Right. Whereas I will use Phentermine as a means to make it easy for a patient to hit the numbers that we want. So if I want a woman to eat 1,500 calories and we give her Phentermine um, and she'd be fine eating 1,000, but she still has to eat 1,500 because that's her minimum, it makes it a lot easy to comply. It's always easy to force feed yourself some food at night to get to your calorie number. Right. And so Phentermine with me, it's more of just a tool to make hitting the numbers that I give my patients easier, mm-hmm. not as a means to eat as little food as humanly possible. And if you look at the long-term data on Phentermine, it doesn't appear to be effective from that data. But that's not – the Phentermine is not being used in that context. They're using right. it to put someone on a 1,000-calorie-a-day hard-boiled egg white for breakfast, half a piece of toast and a piece of fruit, you know, chicken breast with a piece of lettuce for lunch. Eh, that's not going to work. Right. The c- common sense can take someone a really long way in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So is this a drug that you would um, prescribe to someone who is also struggling with um, with a food addiction? And, and there are other drugs that are uh, – indicated for that. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's gray and it, it largely, and most people who overeat do have some degree of food addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, binge eating is a diagnostic, uh, needs diagnostic criteria, but certainly the drugs that are used for binge eating can be helpful even if you don't have the classic binge eating you know, criteria. Mm-hmm. So drugs like Topamax, which is topiramate, um, 5-HTP uh, can be helpful, which is a supplement, um, mm-hmm. can be helpful in the craving control aspect of it, whereas phentermine is a straight appetite suppressant, although it does work with cravings as well, just through its ability to suppress appetite. Um, if there's other issues going on, you know, psychological stress, if someone's eating because they're stressed, then giving them phentermine is not the best call in my mind. It's dealing with the stress, right. either through natural stuff, therapy, or pharmaceuticals. I see. So... How exactly can someone sort of identify whether or not they they do have a food addiction and then what should they do to to address it as far as, you know, either pharmaceuticals or going to a therapist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the tracking will give you a, a large and real honest tracking will tell you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you see that every night at nine o'clock you're eating 16 bags of Hershey's Kisses, then it's more probable than not that there's a degree of food addiction. I see. Um, at which point you would go see, I mean, in theory, you should start with your primary care doctor, see what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there are therapists who are trained in eating disorders um, or food addiction, mm-hmm. um, which are good. But I think a lot of the, the problem is just that the, the expectation that the patient has is wrong. So once there are times when like, people think that if they eat a you know, jelly beans have to be off limits for the rest of your life when they've been eating jelly beans since they were a kid. Um, and I'm thinking is once I have one jelly bean, that's already bad for me. I might as well go eat 16 bags and start again tomorrow. Right. So sometimes what appears to be a food addiction might not be. You can take that person and say, yeah, listen, you can have 35 jelly beans a day. It counts in your macronutrients. You're going to hit your calories and you're fine. And then they're fine with the 35 jelly beans. Mm-hmm. That addictive type behavior comes when they think that's going to be the last time, like the last supper mentality. I Once see. you can get off that, a lot of times food addictions aren't really food addictions. They're just people you know, accepting wrong information. 
And if there is a true food addiction, you know, then avoiding the trigger is probably a good idea. The problem with food addiction, what makes it so complicated is mm-hmm. if you don't smoke crack, you probably will live a long, healthy life. If you don't <laughs> eat food, you'll die. Right. Yes. And and that is something that's that's very true is that many of the other addictions, alcohol or opiates and everything like that. Yeah. Like it, once you get away from them, you'll be OK. But with food, it's a little bit different because you absolutely do need food to live. And right. it makes it difficult to sort of create a relationship that is healthy with food if if you have a food addiction that it it seems like you're always sort of walking and living on this very slippery slope yeah it is it's like it, it's akin to like if you don't smoke any cigarettes you die Mm-hmm. So you need to smoke one cigarette a day. You take somebody who's used to smoking three packs a day and tell me he has to cut back to one a day. It's going to be very, very hard. Right. A continuous challenge. And that's basically – it's not exactly. It's basically you know, what dealing with food addiction is like. So, and I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say that antidepressants can be really helpful um, in that context even if the person is not depressed. And they do use Prozac for binge eating disorder. That's interesting. That something that is usually not thought of as an option for binge eating or is, is it because binge eating is sort of a – it could be a symptom of either depression or, or anxiety? Yeah. I see. Huh. And we don't understand and, – and, and if I'm – if I'm wrong and someone out there does understand the absolute mechanism behind why we binge and why we overeat, et cetera, you know, mm-hmm. to the T, then then I would love to hear it. But as far as I know, we don't know the exact mechanisms. There's a lot of different competing things going on. I mean, right. overeating is if there's a biological component, there's a psychological component, there's a societal component, um, there's a social. There, there's it's called a biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything impacts your food intake. So then let's talk about the uh, the bio part of that biosocial uh, – what was it? Biosocial? Biopsychosocial. Biopsychic social. And there might be a fourth one in there. Environmental. Environmental. Okay. So let's talk about the, the bio part of that, which sometimes, you know, for, for people, weight loss is not straightforward and – society kind of looks at it and says in this misconceived way that the reason that the person isn't losing weight is because they either lack self-control or they're lazy, but there could be some sort of underlying metabolic issues that, that someone faces, correct? Yes, that's true. And they're a lot less common um, than most people like to believe. Like, for example, everyone who is overweight wants to have hypothyroidism. Mm-hmm. And most people don't have hypothyroidism. And in the overweight patients where we picked up hypothyroidism um, and, and treating them, it's certainly not a magic bullet. Right. You know, it still requires the same approach as you would take with somebody without thyroid disease, but it is not doing it with a hand tied behind your back, so to speak, which would be trying to lose weight with a thyroid condition. So I say like adequately treating thyroid will allow you to lose weight, but it won't make you lose weight. So how how can someone identify whether or not they have one of these sort of metabolic issues? I mean, you would go to a uh, you know go to a doctor who deals with it. Um, just briefly on thyroid, there's a giant mm-hmm. controversy going on in the medical 
community between traditional doctors and integrative physicians as to the correct way to diagnose and treat thyroid. Um, so you could go to two different doctors. One doctor could say your thyroid is absolutely fine, and then the other doctor could say your thyroid is not, or as absolutely not fine. Um, and both sides could cite some pretty good literature that says it. So I think that you should get you know, first get evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in kind of that gray area after you've done some research, and you could see a doctor who's more integrative. Mm-hmm. Because essentially, does it does it hurt anyone to? be on a medication that like if they're in a gray area where it's like you don't technically have hypothyroidism but -hmm. if we gave you this medication like it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing either i mean anytime you give someone a medication there's a risk associated with it obviously Mm -hmm. but if you take somebody who's like thyroid tests are on the borderline where half the doc traditional doctors anyway would treat and half the traditional doctors one you can look at some other factors so Mm -hmm. if their cholesterol is high that could indicate um in a low thyroid function that might tip you over the edge to treat because we know the thyroid hormone generally brings down cholesterol okay um you know, if you're lethargic and your hair is falling out. So, like, to give a numbers uh, range, like, the TSH, the higher it is, the lower your thyroid function. Mm-hmm. The cutoff for most labs is 4.5. So, if you get somebody who's 4.4 but displays all of the symptoms of hypothyroidism, you know, weight gain, constipation, fatigue, high cholesterol, you know, it would make more sense to treat that person than someone whose TSH happened to pop up at 4.45 from an insurance physical who feels fantastic. Right. Okay. So it's it's literally a, a case by case basis sometimes in yes. spite of what the numbers say. That is absolutely correct. So in order for someone to to be able to understand where they fall in, in a range, they have to go to their regular physician or an integrated doctor to, to kind of have a have a blood test done and then yeah. they'll go through with them each of those things. Yeah. And I think that there's, it's, it's certainly more convenient to go to the primary care doctor and there's certain laboratory tests to show that things are normal. You know, like there, there, oftentimes there's not an argument that your T, that your thyroid function test is, is right. And that's normally what happens because most people don't have hypothyroidism. Right. Okay. But if you do, you want to make sure that you get it picked up. So what about people that, you know, they don't have hypothyroidism or, or anything like that, but they do have sort of um, pre-existing medical conditions like high blood pressure or uh, diabetes. Does that also affect the, the way or the approach that they have to have to losing weight? Sometimes, yeah. So someone who has high blood pressure should probably not eat as much salt as somebody who doesn't have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, people with diabetes will uh, – type 2 diabetes or the adult onset, you know, the typical one that comes from being overweight, yep. is largely a function of body fat. So if the choice is to limit sugar intake and not lose weight versus eat sugar and lose weight, I would prefer that they ate sugar and lost weight. Because the body fat driving insulin resistance is what causes type 2 diabetes and when it keeps it keeps it propagating. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, I would love it if a person with diabetes wouldn't eat any sugar or had a low, very low sugar intake and lost weight. That's fantastic. But the people who get type 2 diabetes generally don't eat very healthy nutrition plans and are, tend to be overweight. So again, to tell that person who's been slowly giving him or herself diabetes for 30 years after the diagnosis to start eating 100% clean with no sugar is insane. Like they won't do it. Right, right. 
And it's the difference between like like writing a book and seeing patients. Like it's different. I see. Like what works in on paper very rarely works with real people. So essentially what you're saying is that in spite of having sort of this very this very standardized or this very common sort of pre-existing medical condition on paper, the manner by which someone actually manages it can be wholly different from from what is standard procedure on paper. I mean, it, it can be. It's you know, I just my my thought is if we know that type two diabetes comes from excess fat, well, let's get the fat off first. I see. Okay. And, and, and that being said, though, with insulin resistance and diabetes, there there are people who are we call carbohydrate sensitive, mm-hmm. um, meaning that their amount of carbohydrates they can tolerate is different. And I'm not saying that the laws of thermodynamics or the energy equation doesn't apply. It has to. But there's a lot of moving parts on each side of the energy in versus energy out equation, and they need to be accounted for differently because that only looks at energy. It doesn't tell you where the energy is coming from, i.e. Right. fat, sugar, muscles, mm-hmm. et cetera. So how does someone know if they have a carbohydrate sensitivity? Um, I mean, you can raise or lower the probability by looking at their insulin status. Um, but most realistically, you track out your food, and then you try some lower carbs for a couple weeks, and then you try some higher carbs for a couple weeks mm-hmm. and see how you feel and see what your body does. I think that people are way too in a rush to start when that really raises the probability they're going to start the wrong thing. Right. So I'd rather take somebody, take a month and play around with their food, their food choices, their food timing. And like I said, I don't care if people eat at night. I'm sure there's someone out there who when they eat at night gains weight and when they eat in the morning, they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to figure it out yourself. Um, but at the same time, look at the probabilities because if 99 out of 100 people respond one way and you're looking at something, chances are you're going to respond the way the 99 did. Right. So that's a better starting point. I see. Okay. So what if there's someone that has the opposite problem and we don't much talk about this, but they they want to gain weight instead mm-hmm. of instead of losing weight? Is it is it basically the different side of the same coin or is it a wholly different problem? No, it's 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 still energy equation. That means you have to put in more energy than um, is expended. Okay. And I think that people get into pro- – specifically guys who start lifting will think that they need to put on 10 or 15 pounds to make a noticeable impact on their physique. And what happens is they might gain a pound of muscle and 14 pounds of fat, right. which doesn't make them any healthier. And in order to build muscle, you do not need a giant caloric surplus. So a little bit extra, you know, some well-timed amino acids um, – proper workout and a little bit of muscle gain without any fat will will grossly change somebody's physique for the better versus eating everything in sight, lifting heavy. Most of those people just get fat with a little bit of muscle. And then when they do try to cut down, they lose almost all the muscle they just gained. Yikes. Okay. So that would be, that would be scary for me if, if, I mean, I guess if I'm following the, the wrong means by which to, to gain muscle, um, then I, I guess that that would be scary to to basically think it's not working. But essentially, what you're saying is that the approach is just all wrong. Yeah, I mean, slow is good. Slow is good, whether mm-hmm. you're gaining weight or losing weight. Okay, so you talked about the um, 
sort of social aspect to um, to losing weight and sort of all of the factors that come into it. Um, what are your thoughts on a lot of these TV shows that we see uh, around sort of people losing weight and that's the focus? Um, it's It's been categorized as weight loss porn. Um, do you have any thoughts for or against against those TV shows? Um, they're entertaining. They're fun to watch. Um, but you can't try to apply that to your life. Mm-hmm. So I would watch like Fit to Fat to Fit um, for the entertainment value, the same way I would watch SVU or Game of Thrones. Right. But I certainly wouldn't be you know, looking at that as a means to help me lose weight, the same way I wouldn't watch Game of Thrones and see how I could kill Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for you, it's just... It's just there, but it don't sort of take it in as as being the gospel of, of anything, really. Yeah, I mean, because they say things like, "Oh, instead of having strawberry ice cream, have three strawberries." Like, okay, who's gonna do that? Right. <laughs> it, and there's no no in no crazy alternate universe would ever strawberries take the place of strawberry ice cream. Right. That that is sorry. True. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely true. I I would. You know, I prefer. take it back. I'm not going to apologize for that. Okay. Sorry, but not sorry. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Um, and, and I agree. Um, and in full disclosure, like I, I have worked with Charlie and, uh, there have been times where I've gone in and I'm just like, listen, dude, like this just everything that I'm doing. seems to not be working. Like this food that I'm eating is just not fun. It's, it's not great. And you have pulled out some really incredible sort of alternatives that have, helped me reach sort of the the caloric goal that we set and I also don't feel deprived um so can you share like some of those those fun sort of foods that that you've over the years sort of come across that you're like this is good and it will you know help people also and and it fills sort of those gaps I love halo top ice cream it is a um, an all natural protein ice cream that contains 240 calories and 24 grams of protein per pint with a shot of fiber. I think it's like eight grams of fiber. Yeah. Um, if you if you think it's going to be like chubby hubby, you'll be you know, sorely disappointed. But if you look at it as a high volume um, sweet snack that has protein and fiber and tastes good, um, it, it could take the place of your nighttime ice cream, and you can eat a lot of it. Yeah, it. I I can definitely say that that is Halo Top is amazing. I have uh, three pints of it right now in my freezer, and it's the best thing ever. Um, it is a wonderful alternative to that horrid, horrid choice of Arctic Zero. Yeah, which, we don't talk about that anymore because that stuff is <laughs> atrocious. It's so bad um, and gross. But there are some people that like it. But for me, as far as taste was concerned, it it didn't hit the spot. Uh, as far as being an equivalent for ice cream, where I could genuinely say, like, you can keep your briars and I'll eat my Halo Top and still feel the same way. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mixed a, a Tasty Claire pie in with my Halo Top last night. It was delicious. I mixed Oreo Thins in mine. Just There you mine. go. Yeah. Um, so, also, you know, you've already talked about using um, – my fitness pal for you know helping people track um you are very active on there like you like my statuses of how many days you know i have tracked on there and you know you even track yourself um are there any other p 
pieces of technology that you're a fan of using, like Fitbits and, and social media? Yeah, I mean, I'd rather talk about the stuff I'm not a fan of. Okay. And, uh, I, Fitbit has one use. That if you're like a technophile and you're trying to be more active and you want to track your steps, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to make you extremely healthy. It's certainly a good idea for someone who's never worked out before, who likes to sit down to try to get 10,000 steps per day. But for the people who use it as a means to try to calculate how much food they can eat every day, they will be they will fail. They will gain weight. Um, you know, when you run a mile and burn 100 calories over 20 minutes or if you walk a mile over 20 minutes and burn 100 calories um, and then try to add that back, uh, you'll gain weight because you're probably going to burn 20 calories if you just sat on the couch for that same 20 minutes. And there's also a phenomenon called adaptive thermogenesis where your body will slow down when it's not moving or exercising in order to conserve calories. Mm -hmm. So the, I, I, strongly urge everybody to keep the fitness component of their plan separate from the nutrition. Let the nutrition, the quantifiable nutrition goals drive appropriate weight loss and the fitness goal should be to get stronger and faster and have fun. Okay. So if, if people are just focusing on, you know, getting fit and getting stronger and having fun, will that essentially translate into losing weight? For most people, it will not. Okay. Again, there's subconscious adaptive mechanisms which Mm -hmm. keep calories conserved when you're not working out. But indirectly, exercising, especially with a progressive plan where you have quantitatable goal or quantifiable goals, Mm -hmm. um, it will make you more likely to eat properly. And when I say properly, I mean within your numbers, whatever they happen to be. Okay. And every once in a while, somebody will respond to exercise by losing weight, even if they don't change their diet, but that's the exception rather than the rule. So when you're starting up, your likelihood of success, if you're trying to lose weight is a lot greater if you look at what the vast majority of people have to do and not what the anomaly does. Okay. So when, as people are approaching, um, sort of their, their fitness goals and, and sort of starting their weight loss journey, um, there are, there are a lot of feelings that are tied up into that. You know, for some people, it's shame or frustration, um, fear and, and hopelessness. Um, how do you address those feelings um, if, if a client comes into you and they, and they ha- or a patient, they, they have those feelings? It's a really tough question. Um, the hopelessness can be helped sometimes by having them talk to a patient who used to be in their shoes or mm-hmm. showing them a picture or something like that and normally that's me because i was there um you know if i can do it anyone can do it now as far as like the shame um th- that's a lot more difficult and I, I you know without having a specific example i apologize i don't think i'm going to be able to comment any more directly oh, you know no unless you send me something specific oh no worries that's that's fine i mean i just sort of wanted to to understand just you know normally how you would approach that with with someone and just sort of how do you get them to to overcome those feelings yeah i mean honestly what i say is i see you you give me you listen to everything i say for the next two months Mm -hmm. and then then we can have then we can talk okay um and then by then they usually see success usually and then you just use that that sort of momentum to to keep them going 
essentially. Yeah, and then when the next step, when they don't believe me or I say something, they say, well, what happened the last time you didn't believe me? You know, mm-hmm. It goes like that. And then you can show people stories. Like we have you know, our most successful – our most most successful patients don't have the stories up on the internet because they didn't want them. Right. Um, but there are some people who will talk to other patients that will you know, tell them their story. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. And the struggle is real. Like I know it. I do it every day. You know, if I didn't watch what I did, I'd weigh 300 pounds by now. Yeah, the, the struggle is absolutely real. It, it is one of the hardest things that I think uh, people have to sort of cope with um, is sort of dealing with the pressure that not only they feel society puts on them, but they put on themselves mm-hmm. uh, for, for wanting to be thin. And I think the issue is the wanting to be thin rather than focusing on wanting to be healthy. Right. So... Um, so and uh, they're not, you know, they're they're kind of the same thing. Like mm-hmm. you can't see your liver, you can't see your kidneys, you can't see the walls of your arteries, but you can see your abs. Right. So, you know, and everyone's vain, at least to some extent. So, I think that as far as like tangible results go, you should be looking at the outside, and the the inside will fix itself as the outside fixes itself. Mm-hmm. So, looking on the outside is a good gauge to to say, you know. If if you if you thin out the outside, then your your insides will not necessarily correct themselves, but will be healthier to to say the least. Yeah, there is a very very high probability that the insides will correct themselves. I mean, there's certain people who just have the genetic short end of the stick, and no matter what they do, they're going to have heart disease and diabetes. Mm-hmm. But that's very much the exception rather than the rule. So you're you're a very encouraging and enthusiastic person, like in general. Um, very super positive. Um, how do you convince a client to stick with you and, and work through their needs sort of over, over the time that they're with you? Well, most of the time they don't need convincing because you just, you just give them some common sense, which Mm -hmm. a lot of them surprisingly haven't heard before. Like what? You know, like, uh, like a kid came in and said, I have to run for cardio. Because mm-hmm. that's how I lose weight. I said, do you like to run? He said, no, I hate it. I said, do you like to lift weights? He said, yeah, I love it. So why don't you lift weights instead of running? And he's like, eyes opened up. He's like, yeah, I can do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I... People, people have it in, in their heads like they have to be miserable. They have to do a certain thing. Like running's not the best way to lose weight. You know, eating fewer calories is the best way to lose weight. But you're running and you're miserable all the time. Your chances of going to food for comfort are higher than if you're doing something you love in the gym. I see. So uh, essentially someone should find any type of workout that they like. Like if it's, you know, if they do love doing cardio genuinely like running fine, that's, that's your thing. But if you're someone who's like me, that the only way that you're going to be caught running is because you're being chased, then it's a completely different story where I would much rather prefer to to lift weights and do something like that. Um, Which also happens to be the most effective way of changing your bodies is intense resistance training. Huh, that's interesting. That the number one thing that I like to do is essentially one of the better things to do. Um, I'm happy for that. Go me. <laughs> <laughs> go you. Uh, go me. Um, so do you have any sort of advice for anyone who is nervous about beginning their fitness journey? Um, sort of what they should keep in mind, what they should focus on, anything along those lines? Yeah, first nervousness is appropriate if you're overweight and sedentary and out of shape and you're not nervous to begin something then you might not be ready 
or you might not really be willing to commit. Um, and then find someone who knows what they're talking about and work with them. And how exactly do they do that? Because I know there are, there are a lot of people that you can find online and there are a lot of blogs that are sending a lot of uh, misinformation out there. So, so how exactly can people sort of sift through the noise to, to find the true incredible information? Um, yeah, I mean, you have to, you look at the person who's writing at their credentials, mm -hmm. how, they, how they look themselves. Like I wouldn't take interior design advice from somebody who doesn't know how to dress. Okay. Um, you know, the results that they've achieved with their their clients or their patients and what their philosophies are. Like my flexible nutrition plan where you're tracking your food isn't for everybody mm -hmm. who, you know, for people who don't want to track. I mean, we can get around that because I'm a physician. I can give people medication to help cut their appetite down if they don't want to track, you know, mm -hmm. provided the benefits outweigh the risks, which is, you know, know who you're dealing with and not because the ripped dude in your gym said you had to do this. Right. A lot of people are in really good shape in spite of what they do, not because of what they do. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way, that someone so could it, be in shape in spite of, of everything. Yeah, so I mean, what you do is you find, you find a physician who's also a clinical exercise specialist who used to weigh 240 pounds and now maintains a really lean weight and, and does really good work. If you can find one of them, you'd be, you'd be in business. Perhaps totally. a gentleman by the name of Charlie Seltzer. Yeah. And it would keep me in business too, feed <laughs> my kids. Yeah. And I mean, all of your information will be, you know, on the website for, for folks to be able to, to reach out to you um, through the website. Um, no, but seriously, website, if yeah. you're going to read, if you're going to read anybody on the internet, read a guy named Cliff Wilson. He is, he's my coach. He's a bodybuilding prep coach mm -hmm. um who's probably one of the smartest guys i know and and articulates my thoughts much better than i ever could cliff wilson yes all right i will put up information for cliff wilson also on the website for people to be able to access so as we're wrapping up i want to ask you one last question and it is the theme question for my podcast reluctantly adult and it is around getting advice from people so um, the question is, what is the best advice that you've never taken? Make sure your shoes aren't scuffed. Wait. I'm looking at them now. <laughs> because apparently shoes are very important and people look at your shoes. So you don't want to be walking around with scuffed shoes. Right. Okay. My shoes are scuffed right now. And Aside from that, I try, I try to take everybody's advice, at least for a second, or at least any good advice, which is mm -hmm. why I had a problem answering that question. Because if people give me something good, I always have a lot to learn, and I'll, I'll try it. Pretty much anything that anyone tells me to do that makes sense, I'll try. Okay. Ex except for the shoes, which makes total sense. I just won't do it. <laughs> on, it because sounds either, like on principle now. You know, either I'm lazy or just stubborn, whatever it is. There's a giant scuff in my shoe, and I have a really nice pair of pants on. <laughs> that's fine. But I, you know what? I think that's also <laughs> indicative of, like, your personality of, like, you know, you're you're a really put-together guy, but also, like, you, you don't tend to take yourself very seriously. Like, you're just like, I'm Charlie. Like, you don't even – like, when I first met you and I called you Dr. Seltzer, like, you were like, please call me Charlie. Like, there was nothing about you that was like, yes, I'm a doctor and you should call me that. Like, right. you just were like, no, I'm Charlie, and that's yeah. it. And so all the, all the letters after my name speak for themselves. My right. name is Charlie. 
That's awesome. That's that's why I like you because you're cool. Um, Charlie, thank you so much for for joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Charmel. I appreciate it anytime. Thanks. And that's it. Um, for me, the major takeaway from this conversation was that Halo Top should become your new ice cream bay. Um, I know some of you out there like that Tahitian or Tahini or whatever it is. You should, you should try this. It's, it's really good. And apparently it's low-key kind of good for you. So try it out. Um, big thanks to my guest today, Dr. Charlie Seltzer. Uh, his information will be on the website as well as um, a link to the information for Cliff Wilson, um, his mentor. Um, I also want to send a thank you to my family and my friends who supported me as I got this podcast up and running. Um, I really appreciate all of your help. Um, Also, thank you to Christopher Davis for my intro and my outro music and the amazing Ken Griffin for my incredibly dope logo. Um, You are absolutely the best. Um, Tell me what you thought of the episode. Uh, You can leave me a comment at www.reluctantlyadult.com or you can email me at ireluctantlyadult at gmail.com. You can also share with me your reluctantly adult moments on Instagram at ireluctantlyadult or on Twitter at reluctantlyadlt. I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you next week. Thanks.